In this episode of the podcast, we meet Anastasia Rivdo, who is a partner at Get Funded Tools, a management consulting company located in LA. She's a three-time CEO of venture startups, has worked across SAAS, HR tech, mindfulness tech, consumer, and game verticals. She's an international speaker and startup mentor at 500 Startups and an impact investment evangelist. In the past, Anastasia drove product vision and technical development of the software for the Golden State Warriors, Luxottica, and Sunglass Hut that resulted in award-winning products and tens of millions of newly engaged users. We're here with Anastasia, and she is here with uh, Get Funded Tools. You know, really excited to to do this show and you know see her again. You know, we we had a really good chat a couple of weeks ago, just talking about emerging managers talking about number one, the problem that people face to have the information that they need to start a fund, but then all the opaqueness with raising a fund and how do you build a pipeline? It's essentially a sales strategy, right? You need to have a lot of people uh, in the pipeline and you know, you're having discussions, you're having second discussions, there's different layers of the deck. Um, so I think there's just a lot of things to slice and dice. But before we get into all that, uh, why don't we, you know, just get to know you a little better, Anastasia. So tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up. Uh, I know you're on the West Coast, um, but tell us about your background and then, you know, how you started Get Funded Tools. Sure. Happy to share. First of all, thank you for having me here, Joel. I loved our conversation and I'm super excited for this live stream. I'm really hoping to share at least one valuable insight that for our audience will create that aha moment and be like, okay, I got it. Now I know how to raise my fund. So I'll be uh, dropping some wisdom drops <laughs> today. Um, regarding me, uh, I'm from Ukraine originally. I've been in the US for the past six years. I moved to San Francisco first, then uh, moved down to LA, chasing the sun and the warmth. And I started in tech um, 12 years ago and been product manager, project manager, building stuff. Like I love technology. I understand it, you know, from the ground up. And then I was uh, headhunted to be a first startup evangelist for a venture studio, for the first venture studio in Ukraine. Back in the day, nobody knew even, you know, what is pitching, what is startup, like, why should I share my ideas? What if somebody will yeah. steal it? Sure. And, you know, also the whole venture ecosystem was so young, fresh and new. It was, there, were, there were no capital, there was no investors. People didn't know, like, what do you mean investing in startup that doesn't even have revenue yet? So my job was to educate people around it. It was super fun. But then I got into building my own companies and uh, being a CEO for six years, um, you know, building different um, startups, cash cows, different kind of businesses. And I've had um, one medium sized exit to my business partners, uh, sold my equity, then raised capital for my startups, passed it on my co-founders. And at some point started Get Funded Tools to, you know, overcome the challenges that uh, people experience when they're raising capital because I personally experienced it a lot as a, yeah. a immigrant entrepreneur female in Silicon Valley I didn't believe that there is a challenge in raising capital like I, I had always had perception that you know 
uh, I don't have any limitations. But then I found that there are. And actually, number one limitation was in my mindset around fundraising. And then the tools. So that's what we do in Get Funded Tools. We help entrepreneurs. We help venture fund managers uh, to find the right mindset and then apply strategy and use the tools that will accelerate their fundraising. So tell me a little bit about the, the wrong mindsets to have and some things that you've helped them correct. I guess, so, I mean, obviously, that off the top of my head, it's like I have a positive mindset, right? But, um, but what, what are some of the ways that you've helped to course correct them that uh, maybe when they started out, they had the wrong mindset? I actually can give you an example of one of our clients. Mm -hmm. uh, they are an incredible fund, second, raising second fund. First fund is quite successful and they've reached the point where they just couldn't break the ceiling. They couldn't mm -hmm. close. And they came to us with this uh, problem. And, you know, we started with the strategies and the tools because nobody wants to buy mindset, right? Uh, but it's the core. And after two months working with us, they realized that they have very giving value creation mindset towards their startups as a fund. You know, they make intros, they provide strategic connections, they educate entrepreneurs. But when it comes to fundraising, they have very, I mean, I call it taker mindset. Mm -hmm. because they try to raise capital and it's natural. It's that for everyone who is raising capital, you're trying to get something from the potential investor, right? But the trick is that you need to trick your mind and say, you know, I don't need this capital. Mm -hmm. I don't need this capital. How can I give you value? How can I provide you value? How can I establish relationships with you? Yeah. And honestly, say sometimes... No, I was going to yeah. say, you know, there's, uh, there's, there is, I mean, a lot of times you get really, really stressed out and frustrated, you know, because you get rejected a lot, right? So I deal with those all the time because I talk to all these emerging managers and, um, you know, there's pension funds and there's larger institutions. Um, and, you know, oftentimes people think it's a waste of time because they're like, wait a minute, like I need, I need to raise 10 million right now. So why? Why do I want to, you know, hop on a call with these institutions? And I think it's not the low-hanging fruit, right? Because you're trying to close your um, your nano fund. Uh, but I think it's still good to build that relationship. Because I, I always believe, like, you never know uh, what can come out of an introduction, right? What if that person knew a fund to fund? Or what if that person knew, um, uh, you know, like a like the VP of product at Twitter who could write you a hundred k check? Um, so I think sometimes they're kind of it's, it's a little bit of like that frustration that maybe just drives them to get back to the transactional nature, right? It is hard. I'm not saying it, it's mm -hmm. probably one of the hardest jobs that we see has to do is to, to raise capital. And yeah. just to, you know, use an example of our relationship. We jumped on the first call. We didn't, we haven't done any business together yet, even though we can do a lot of business. There is a lot of cross potential between our companies. But what you've done, the first thing, you're like, hey, Anna, let me give you some exposure. You know, I have this YouTube channel. Uh, let me introduce you to my uh, fund managers. I have Accelerator. Come teach there. You already started providing a lot of value. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it's slightly easier when you're in, um, let's say, 
parallel relationships, right? So like we potentially yeah. can collaborate, neither of us raising capital from each other. But that's the foundation because for doing business uh, together or even more investing in somebody, you need to gain trust first. Mm-hmm. So before this layer of trust, the transaction is not going to happen. And yeah. from what I'm seeing, the most successful fund managers, they really focus on figuring out how do they overcome this, this gap? How do they build this trust to the level where they can have a transaction, which is an investment? So how do you change their mindset? I guess, do they just start trying to think more from a position of strength and, and really focus on adding value? Is that kind of a good framework, like a mental framework? I would say so. Uh, usually we just offer them experiments, mm-hmm. you know, as, as simple as like, you've been sending these emails to your LPs, right? Sure. What's your conversion rate? They're like, well, you know, it's like two, 3% people respond or, you know, they jump on the call, but then we don't close them. We're like, all right, how about we try something different? How about instead of, you know, sending like a a lifelong email about your portfolio performance uh, and about your deal flow, we just ask them a human question. Like, would you like to jump on the call? Like, I know you've been interested in emerging VC. Um, we are an emerging VC. We have some insights on what is the best way of selecting emerging VC. Maybe it won't be us, but we can share this, this data with you. So let's jump on a call and talk. And people are, you know, there is no pressure. Everybody is open to chat. So, you know, they would chat. They would move them to the next level of next stage of trust. And then when the trust is established, as I said, now they can talk about the transaction. So like small things like that. And, you know, like we literally had fund managers, GPs coming back to us being like, oh my God, like I am shocked how people are responding to this. Mm-hmm. Like LPs are just now want to talk to me. And I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what are some of the things that you've seen have been the most authentic that have converted the best? Is it deal flow is it just something that's uh related to the news i guess what are what types of content do you see are the most valuable to add value to to lps first that you've seen just and this is just based on the data right sure yes uh first of all i would like to slightly separate separate the first time fund managers and then second and third funds because those are Slightly different animals. Yeah. So and they're different LPs too, essentially, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's a different strategies. So if you are raising your first fund, I don't want to be too critical, but forget about the fund. Fund is not the product. You are the product. Mm-hmm. You are raising for yourself. You you are becoming the product. I literally had a, an amazing conversation with um, Peter Bruce Clark. Uh, from Social Impact Capital, they're raising their second fund. And he gave me such a great quote that inspired me so much. I asked him, what helped you raise capital? In, it, it's a tough job. So what, what actually worked? He said, I weaponized my personality. And I, I think there is, there is so much wisdom in that. Because you, if you're raising fund right now, there is unique 
perspective that you have. Also, you have unique background, most probably. Mm -hmm. And especially if you don't have a track record, right? If you like not carrying an exit, a billion dollar exit that you by accident invested a couple of years ago, it's really hard to convince people to give you money. So you need to find that unique perspective, that unique value that you as a person want to bring to your potential investors and build on that. Yeah, that's really helpful. And then, so that's, you know, obviously that's fund one nano VC, right? And then let's talk about maybe juggling between nano getting into micro and then beyond micro. So if we're talking about a second fund, right? Now, hopefully you have some track record, but still, uh, there is one of the biggest trends that I see right now happening in the VC world is the, is the insane competition. Money is becoming commodity. Like there are so many funds. There is so much capital being poured every year like that. Even, you know, if you look into the medium sized fund, it went from it, it grew like I think to 69 percent like medium fund right now. Size mm-hmm. fund in U.S. is 75 million. Yeah. So there is a lot of capital and there is a lot of competition for LPs. So the question is, if you now have a track record, great, this is good. It's definitely going to help you. But now the question is, how do you stand out? How do you communicate your brand? How do you communicate your strategy? And it's, honestly, it's funny. Like VCs invest in the most innovative tech out there but they are one of the most resistant to change industry and and like people like changing, you know, automating their operations or adding any tech to their Mm -hmm. operations. Sure. And even, you know, so now if we're talking about the second funds, right. And the third funds as well, touching on that point, I literally had another conversation with a GP and he's like, you know, I'm hearing that, Right now, GPs are starting to share on social media their successes. Mm-hmm. And I think we will start sharing it on social media. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sad and funny at the same time because you think, well, yes, of course you should be doing that. Yeah. Of course you should be communicating your successes to the world. But it's such a new world for the fund managers. So I'm seeing that the fund managers that have very strong social media strategy, content strategy, mm-hmm. they're really succeeding because now they have the eyeballs, they have attention, yeah. and then they have funnels through which they can onboard potential investors into their, um, you know, into their LP network. They have tools that can use from you know, oh, somebody heard about my fund. Now they have awareness. As you mentioned, it's a sales funnel, right? Mm-hmm. They mentioned, they've heard about my fund. And now I have a tools to convert them to somebody who is willing to invest in me. Yeah. And I think they call that, you know, building in public, right? So you're building your fund, you're building your firm, um, you're, you're sharing wins, you know, amazing founders that you backed. I think sharing all that um, it gets picked up because you hit the hashtags and, you know, a lot of these LPs are on Twitter and they're, they're watching those signals as part of their diligence process. Uh, maybe you can walk through a couple of the different, you know, things to be mindful of 
um, about like, and obviously you're not a compliance attorney, but obviously, you know, if you're, if you're classified as like a 506C, you're allowed to talk about your fundraising on Twitter versus if you're a 506B, you know, there's things that you have to be private about. So any strategies for that, right? If you can't really share that much information, you know, you could probably share that you invested in a company, um, but, you know, obviously you can't talk about the fundraise and, and all that stuff when it comes to a compliance standpoint, right? Right. Uh, the whole point is that you don't need to talk about your fundraising on social yeah. media, because again, that's a, a taking strategy. What yeah, is the giving true. strategy? How can you provide value? Like mm -hmm. if you're a VC and you have a specific uh, mandate and you focus on, there is more and more strategy. Uh, there is more and more yeah. funds that are focusing on specific mission, right? Mm -hmm. And they're integrating ESG tracking and they have unique insights to specific industries. So yeah. why don't not share this insights? And yeah. again, no, as, the, as fund managers, like <laughs> from another conversation in Manlo last Friday, um, the fund manager was telling me about his strategy towards building relationship with family offices and yeah. what they've done, which I never heard before. And I think this is absolutely genius. They realized that there is a challenge in the family, single family offices on passing, the, uh, passing down the values and passing down the vision from later generation to a younger generation. There is a generational gap. So mm -hmm. what they've done, they came to family offices and they started giving workshops That's on great. How, how to you know, communicate, how to bridge this gap between generations. Mm -hmm. It looks like it has nothing to do with fundraising, right? Sure. But it has everything to do with fundraising. Yeah, it's, and, it, and you can even get a guest speaker, you know, who is a family, right? That way they're hearing it from a family. And I think a lot of the families like to meet other families to kind of share deal flow and, and share thoughts as well. So if you can kind of create some type of community where people are just sharing knowledge, um, you're just kind of surrounding yourself with them and building that relationship with them. So. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. And then um, talk to me about the later stage uh, fund manager. Some of those fund managers, you know, from an institutional standpoint, what are some of the disciplines that they need to start thinking about when you kind of graduate, right? You're, you're a nano VC, you're, you're kind of, you know, ramping up fund two. When you start getting to, I guess, how far do you go out? Do you go out to like uh, fund three as well, or is it mainly uh, fund two? It varies because some fund threes, you know, as you mentioned, some first funds are not the funds. It could be like 3 million, 4 million funds. Yeah. So what I saw fund managers would do, they would call their nano fund zero fund, right? Mm -hmm. And their first fund, their technically second fund is actually their first fund. So yeah. it's tricky. I would say that um, it really depends on the fund size. We usually work with our our main customers are fund managers that are raising from 200 to 100 million. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, that's kind of the range. But mm -hmm. then sometimes we just do consulting or, um, you know, just like a, a, a narrow service that we can help with to the funds at a later stage. So yeah. I saw funds that are raising, you know, 200 million and they're still doing it off the spreadsheet. Sure. And what we can help them do is to create a system internally, create that funnel that help them to run their investor relations at scale. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, some, some of them, 
been able to raise a lot of capital. Like let's say their second fund was 100, 100 million or 120 million, right? So they've been able to raise it with big checks. So they have like, you know, 10 LPs. But now yeah. when they're going to raise 300 million or, you know, 350 million, they need to lower the minimum check and deal with more LPs. And it's a lot of relationship to manage. So this is where we can help and come in and organize the process of how are they dealing with their pipeline um, mm -hmm. and you know, leverage what they already have. Yeah. Yeah. I sent you a note yesterday. I know you're busy, but um, I think one thing that would be cool, and you probably already have this in your toolkit, but you know, what's the template that an emerging manager should have for like managing the pipeline? Like if you had a spreadsheet, you know, there's so many people that have different templates. I think Elizabeth Yin published, you know, how she raised 11 million and she had some spreadsheet, but what are some of the things that you should be tracking, right? So there's obviously the name of the LP and like maybe their contact info, but, you know, should you be tracking like the interactions, like how many touch points you had? I guess maybe you can walk me through maybe the critical things that you need to have in an LP tracker. That's such a pipeline. great question. That's <laughs> an, an amazing question. So what I saw that usually notes that fund managers make on the LP are so limited. It's as you said, you know, it's like the email and maybe the location and that's it. But the biggest value is in notes and insights that you know about this specific person. Mm -hmm. So when you are jumping on a call with a potential LP, I mean, you guys are coming from business perspective. Treat it as the customer development interview. They are your potential customer, yeah. even though they're an investor. So try to ask questions and try to really understand what are these people looking for? What are they driven by? If they're looking for, you know, maybe they're not willing to invest in the fund yet, uh, but they're looking for side opportunities. And maybe you can bring them the side opportunities and build value this way. Maybe they're passionate about specific industry that you have background in or, you know, your partner has a background in. So educate them, show your authority in that industry. So all this should be in notes. You should learn, you know, what drives them, what motivates them, what, <clears throat> um, what, objection, what objections they have, like what, is, what are their concerns, you know, what's happening in their lives right now. Uh, even asking questions like, you know, if there is one thing that would, that I can bring you that would make your day, what that would be. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very human question. Like you would think again, yeah. how's it related to fundraising, but it can give you incredible insights into mm -hmm. how to position yourself, how to really bring value. That's really helpful. And then, you know, so the pipeline, those attributes are important. And then, you know, talk to me about the deck. You know, we talked about this on the call, but right, like the different layers of the deck, right? Sometimes there's a one cheater. Sometimes there's like a, um, a three page deck. And then there's obviously the more um, detailed deck and then the data room. So can you walk us through those different layers and, and how they differ for nano VCs versus, you know, fun too? Sure. Well, again, when it comes to the non-OVC emerging fund managers, it's all about you. It's much less about the deck. What I would recommend every fund manager to do is to invest 
at least some capital into building your deck and your materials so it looks good. Yeah. It might sound obvious, but I see so many fun decks that are just, you know, it looks like they've been done in like Microsoft PowerPoint 98. Yeah, sure. And, you know, we live in the era where design is so accessible and aesthetics are building your brand. So why not to use that as a tool to at least build that initial brand behind yourself? Like, look good uh, when yeah. it comes to your materials. And then, of course, invest in your business narrative. Invest in, in your copywriting. How do you really communicate and stand out? Because you, you have to understand the, the reality. LPs are receiving hundreds of emails and you know offers every single day so how can you grab their attention and again focus because if you're a non-vc you really have to focus on you and your background and mm -hmm. what are you bringing to the table rather than you know the like you, you can't have a track record yet um you have you can only have a personal track record and then of course like it's good to mention a deal flow, like at least show a couple deals that you already are working on, looking at as an example. Yeah. Uh, because that will give, again, if you have access to unique deal flow, which you should have if you're starting a VC, uh, utilize that, showcase it, showcase it in a deck. If, if you are a um, later stage, second, third fund, I mean, of course, your strongest suit is your track record. So when it comes to the deck, when it comes to executive summary, use the numbers, use the big numbers and show them right ahead in the first couple of slides. Like mm -hmm. don't, don't, don't wait until the 10th slide to show your IRR if you yeah. already have it. Lead with it. Got it. So, yeah, so let's walk through the order, right? And you may not have it in your head, but I'm just thinking, right? Like, what are what are some of the first things? So if you have a track record, bubble that up in the beginning and just say, hey, guys, we're, we're already delivering, um, you know, 3X MOIC. And, and what are some of the other KPIs that you recommend to call out, I guess, from a performance standpoint on the deck? I would say, I mean, number one, obviously, is IRR, but... Mm -hmm. One of the biggest trends that's happening right now is the ESG, like mm -hmm. communicate how are you tracking the impact of your fund? Like, what does it even mean to you? Uh, sure. And again, if you have traction around these numbers, show it. Mm -hmm. Then, um, of course, it depends on who are you sending the deck to. But Again, try to at least slightly personalize it towards what are these people looking for. Again, if they're looking for specific deals, showcase specific deals on your you know, third, fourth slide. Uh, mm -hmm. Show them uh, the follow-on investments that you, know, you are going to do with these companies and explain why. Uh, yeah. Of course, the, again, even if you're raising a second and third fund, it's still a lot about you as a fund manager. So what is your personal track record? What have you done in the past that are making you a good fund manager? What do you have in common with the person that you're sending this deck to? So all these things are kind of really good to show in the beginning and then focus on the overall strategy uh, of the fund and maybe um, 
again, as I said, money is a commodity. So it's really important to find, to, to, to craft unique value proposition as a fund and really focus on how can you communicate it? How can you lower the risk for the investor to come in in your fund? Find a way to communicate it in your deck as well. I see mm-hmm. some funds are using them, um, the hedge fund strategy of uh, 8% uh, until, until they bring 8% back. They're not charging any carry or um, you know, any interest. So some strategies like that uh, or showcasing opportunities that LPs received in a fund one, right? and see how they leverage these opportunities. So there is a lot of ways to talk about track records. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just really, really important to focus on what are you bringing rather than what are you getting. Yeah. Along with IRR, any other stats to call out? You know, I mean, we we talked about DPI and cash on cash returns and and MOIC. Any other stats that you've kind of seen uh, people call out at a high level? on the on the pitch decks i think you mentioned it all to be mm-hmm. honest that yeah. is much more about grabbing the attention sure rather than closing you yeah. know so the deeper numbers are usually come in in the process of due diligence yeah and something i've heard from um uh ajay from happiness ventures mm-hmm. uh he said that you know neither of our LPs done due diligence on us. And I'm like, really? How so? He's like, oh, you know, they just, by the time they decided to invest, they already Mm -hmm. trusted us that they didn't really, you know, waste time on, on that. It was easy decision for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've heard the expression too, and obviously this doesn't relate to everybody, but at the end of the day, the, your decision in picking a manager is not too different. And this might be a little provocative, but it's not too different than picking a spouse. Right. I mean, there's only so much diligence that you can do on picking a spouse, right? You can spend time with them. You can date them for two years, uh, which is the typical time that it takes for uh, institutional LP to, to, to meet you and possibly do an allocation, right? It's like 19 months, right? So it's, um, so, it, you know, you date somebody for two years, you get to know them, you meet their friends, you, you, uh, you look them up on social media, right? But at the end, that decision it's still a matchmaking decision, right? It's not like a scientific or quantitative decision at the end of the day, right? You either feel um, like you want to back this person and and you are right or you're, or you're wrong and you learn from it, you know? But I feel like there isn't any calculation that you can really do. I mean, there is the performance numbers, right? But everybody has the performance. What you're really backing is kind of what you said, right? Weaponize. Uh, your personality and it's your, you know, you is the product, right? So that's kind of the biggest, um, biggest thing. So, yeah. And, you know, just talking, I, I wanted to really mention this for the tactics of fundraising for the first fund, because I feel like there are so many fund managers coming to the fundraising game. And um, one of the strategies they try to use is kind of buy that painkiller and find a broker dealer that would you know find LPs, open their network for them, and etc. I'm not saying that broker dealers are inefficient, but again, mm-hmm. if it's your first fund, this is not the best strategy. Yeah. Uh, your best strategy is to build two funnels. One is the funnel of 
your people who believe in you who can potentially become your LP. So it's potential mm-hmm. investors, right? And the second funnel, which is equally important for first, second, third, any funnel, is the fun is the relationship with connectors, is the people, not brokers, people yeah. who are so passionate about what you are doing and have networks that can make you warm interest. And their yeah. incentive won't be, you know, 2% or 3% uh, success fee. Their incentive is your vision. Their incentive is to really help you out. And building these relationships in a sustainable way, in a consistent manner, that's what really separates fund managers that are raising faster, that are closing faster because they line up this relationship. They line up yeah. this interest. And even yeah. having the traction, having the numbers of how many connectors do I have, right? Mm-hmm. How many connectors, how many interests I receive from these connectors? When I ask fund managers this question, they usually don't know the answer. Sure. What is the what are the other downsides of broker dealers? Because they take a percentage, right? So then, does that impact your allocation as well? So if you're getting like a, you know, five million dollar allocation from a family office, and then the broker dealer takes a percentage, that that actually reduces your allocation as well, right? Or how does that work? I guess is there a downside with how that transaction works for the fund manager as well? Right. You basically have to pay out. Usually they pay out from the management fee. So yeah. you're getting less cash on hand. Which Got it. Okay. So they take of... it from your management fee then. Right. Okay. So it kind of makes sense for, uh, in a way, because you mm-hmm. will spend money on fundraising, even though yeah. you don't realize it, you know, going mm-hmm. to events, traveling, roadshow, buying tickets for round tables and et cetera. So you will spend money on your fundraising. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but Broker, again, just just understanding, you know, having that unit economics of how mm-hmm. much would it cost for you to get an LP yourself through building your network mm-hmm. versus bringing somebody on and paying them a commission for that introduction. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's, uh, I guess it's not as authentic if you're kind of using a, um, a broker to, to just kind of get directly into access. And then maybe it impacts also just the network effects of uh, LPs connecting you to other LPs and then other GPs. And and um... I would say it's kind of, I like your analogy about mm-hmm. the marriage, right? So there are matchmakers and sure. there are fabulous matchmakers. There are people mm-hmm. who really understand what are you about? What do you care for? What is your strategy? And they look into their network and they find the, the person, potential LP, right, that would match that vision. So they can mm-hmm. potentially can bring you an incredible introduction. Yeah. But the reality is that the business model of a broker dealer looks like I have to work with 20, 50 deals at a time because I am working on a success fee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can cover my costs. And, um, you know, and I just don't have capacity for really, really grabbing, grasping what is this fund about? And again, mm-hmm. making meaningful introductions, not saying yeah. everybody does that. There are, there mm-hmm. are, again, as I said, there are amazing matchmakers out there, but yeah. unfortunately it's not true for the average Joe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the similar analogy, right? Like if you find the wrong matchmaker, you could get divorced in like yep. a few years, right? So that's same expensive. thing, right? Like, so 
<laughs> it could impact your, well, I mean, just the same analogy, right? Your LP relationship, right? You may not, you may not get another allocation for fund two. And then, you know, if it goes wrong, I don't know, maybe you don't find the right LP that's a good fit uh, for a long-term partnership. Because yeah, a lot of yeah. times you want those LPs to recycle the proceeds and reinvest, you know, back into uh, fund two and fund three, right? So. Right. And yeah. another downside of that, um, just building on what you said, is besides the fact that they might not invest in your fund two and fund three, one of the most powerful sources of new introductions for you is your existing LPs. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you're not on the same page with your LP and you have somebody, you know, who just gave you money for your first, first fund, all right, well, that's good. But can they also give you additional value by engaging their network and bring, mm -hmm. you know, their friends or, you know, somebody, their, their partners to your fund, to your second fund as well. Yeah. You know, one question I have on going back to the slides, there's a team slide. I've seen a pretty interesting format for the team slide where it's almost like a timeline. So it's kind of like, hey, I was in college, then I did my PhD, and then I met Anastasia in the dorm room, and then her and I decided to start a fund, you know? So I've seen like that kind of cool graph. So maybe tell me a little bit about storytelling and, you know, maybe talking about the team, but, you know, what are some best practices for fund managers to tell the story clearly and, um, and really sell themselves better. And, you know, what, what was done wrong and, and, you know, any stories you have around that would be helpful. Sure. Sure. Well, one of the mistakes that I see a lot is that fund managers focus on themselves too much when they talk mm. to LP. Okay. And um, the best strategy is to, you know, give a short pitch uh, of what are you about and then um, entertain with some cool facts, some cool stories, like learn from, I mean, it might sound a little ridiculous, but learn from stand-up comedians. Mm -hmm. Like they're great at grabbing the attention, sure. right? Have you been ever on like a stand-up comedy and be like, oh my God, I'm so bored. Probably not. Right. So learn yeah. from them, learn mm -hmm. how they grab an attention because people want to be entertained, even yeah. in the business world, especially in a business world, they want to be engaged. So engage them and then turn to questions, ask them specific questions that will give you insights. I don't know if you're familiar with Chris Voss, but he talks yep. about in negotiations, right? Mm -hmm. He talks about find the black swan. The black swan being that hidden piece of information about the person yeah. that can really give you leverage in the negotiation. Mm -hmm. So the person that asks the question leads the narrative. Yeah, no, it's really and helpful. Then, and then when it comes to storytelling in your deck, you know, there are basic rules. Try to deliver one message per slide. Like don't overdo it. There, it should be easy. There should be a flow around yeah. your deck. And there is actually a great book um, on copywriting, which I really recommend everybody who's writing a deck. It's mm -hmm. written by uh, Sugarman, the guy that pretty much invented the direct, um, direct response marketing. Mm -hmm. And the book is called something Ad Networks. I can give you the link after that. 
but it's number one yeah. book. Like if you search, I think I found it's it, the Adwe Copywriting yeah, Handbook, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. I literally have it like right there next to me. Nice. So this is such a great book about storytelling. Yeah, thank you for for the link. Yep. Uh, it will help you to shrink down your copy and mm-hmm. make it more strong and more powerful, and make it. You know, you 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 have to with your deck. You have to create arouse the interest around your yeah. fund and around your deal. And that's done through several things, you know, copywriting, design, the, the, the business narrative, the story narrative, but really try to think of it in a way of a talk. Mm-hmm. So if you go on stage and you want to deliver a talk, you have, you know, the intro, the plot, and then the conclusion call to action. Sure. This is the structure of your deck. You want to have that similar flow that similar response when somebody is skimming through your deck yeah no that's really helpful um let me see what other questions i have i think um you know what about just community building with lps like what have you seen as uh success when it comes to uh just gps putting together you know maybe events for lps is it like a cocktail hour is it a panel uh what what has been uh, meaningful for just building LP communities? Um, I've noticed that younger funds that are targeting mm. larger checks, yeah, they are usually having a small, uh, small dinners or small, mm-hmm. small online gatherings, like round tables. Yeah. Where it's a, a small group, you know, three, four people, five max mm-hmm. that allows LPs to, kind of understand each other and also meet that provides a lot of value and it creates that circle where people can build meaningful relationships yeah. because it's still small enough mm-hmm. uh, and also learn something new. Again, it's all about entertain, educate, right? And build trust. So you, every time you do something in whatever format it is, Zoom or in person, try to deliver on those three things. And um, then when it's a later stage funds, and let's say uh, one of our team members worked uh, within uh, Pantera Capital, Mm -hmm. they have fabulous IR strategy. Like their engine is state of the art. It's a Ferrari Mm -hmm. of fundraising. And um, what they do, they target large amounts of potential LPs Mm -hmm. and uh, they can do it through, you know, numerous, numerous um, large live streams. But they can do that because a, they already have a brand. Yeah. B, they're they, they are operating in the unique industry where not that mm-hmm. many people have that much insight as they they do because they've been there sure. for a while. Um, so in that case, you know, webinars they work. They really work mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, because they can target investors that are putting you know 100k check so if you're Mm -hmm. okay with that that might work as well yeah um and besides that um in person in person dinners that are very private very small nobody is selling anything to anybody you're just getting together you're discussing certain subject um you're getting to know people that's it that that's been working really well and the value to the LPs is if you can get a group of LPs, they also get to just meet other LPs to kind of share, share thoughts and notes on deal flow, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I think, you know, so Pantera is interesting because they have, you know, they have the digital currency fund, they have the venture fund. Um, you know, one other piece I'm interested in is just content distribution, right? I mean, I have the, you know, and I try to double dip as much as I can, right? Because we have the YouTube channel and then it, uh, we do the live stream and then it streams to YouTube. So you have that content. I'm not using Clubhouse that much. Um, I just, I'm not that good at it. Um, you know, you can rip audio from YouTube and, and Zooms and push them onto a, a podcast, you know, which seems like it makes sense. Some people I've seen have like taken snippets of like podcasts um, and just kind of push them onto Twitter. But any, any tips on just content distribution? Because there's so many things you can do, right? There's blogs, there's newsletters. Um, so how do you navigate that? What has been successful uh, and what is not? I would say the most important thing is to, there are two things to mm -hmm. understand. First one is where, where are your potential investors? Where are your potential? Yeah. Piece, right. If they're not on Clubhouse, there is no point of yeah, really, right. you know, putting your time and effort on Clubhouse. Uh, if they're leading, if they're reading email, if they're reading their LinkedIn messages, you mm -hmm. really have to understand where they are. Yeah. And second is to understand what is your unique style? Mm -hmm. Because some people are great on video. Like I've yeah. seen, you know, GPs come on a video and they're just so great. And then some people just, they hate it. They, they just can't do it. And they're really good at writing. So they would write amazing blog posts and amazing newsletters. Yeah. Um, so it's good to have somebody that can help you with your content strategy and yeah. content distribution because it's a lot of work, mm -hmm. um, but also it's just really good to tap into what are you, what are you good at and, yeah. and double down on that. No, I totally agree. I mean, I think I want to write uh, and I think I'm okay at it, but it just, I feel like I, it, it falls off the, it falls off the schedule because it just, I don't block the time to do it, you know, but I mean, the, this stuff is great because I just love uh, you know, just covering topics. I feel like I can get in more words at the at, at one time, having a discussion versus uh, writing it down. So that works for me. Um, we got a question here. So uh, how much, so Chaitanya, just jump in if I'm not capturing this correctly, but I guess how much of your decisions are gut feeling versus analysis? And I guess, are you, are you looking, are you asking from like the LPs that, or, or GPs that Anastasia works with? Uh, no, like specifically her own decisions. Okay. In general, Ooh. for business and life. Because I, I have noticed, like I started as a chess player and now a founder and whatever. I've noticed like the more I become gut feeling oriented, mm -hmm. the faster and more successful I get. That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, uh, when I started in my career, I was trying to use my brain more than my intuition mm -hmm. because... You know, it's just more common, I guess. And uh, it's uh, like a common sense. But some uh, statistics to some research to look into is the proof that the neural connection between our brain and our gut, which people call intuition, right? Mm -hmm. The gut feeling are happening not from the brain to gut. It's happening yeah. from gut to brain. So it's not our brain tells our gut what to do. It's our gut tells our brain what to sure. do. And it's been proven by uh, scientists. So 
you know, just using that data and my personal experience, every second that I didn't, every single time that I didn't listen to my intuition would end Mm -hmm. up in some sort of disaster. Yeah. So by now, I just trust my gut 100% of the time. And more than that, talking about uh, VC investors, right? How they make decisions. Yeah. Literally, every single successful VC is the combination of the gut feeling that they use and they're very tuned into. And then, of course, the analysis that backs up their gut decisions. So in my personal opinion, investing uh, energy and maybe even money into developing mm-hmm. your intuition, it's a really good, good investment because it's going to pay back, especially in such a risky world as, you know, venture. Yeah. And I two takeaways from Jeff Bezos. Um, he's given a couple of fireside chats and that's exactly what he said. He said that some of his best decisions have been through intuition. And then another thing that he's seen in strong leaders is someone who can change their mind quickly. So if something, you know, maybe you believe something and it's working, but you might unveil something new um, and that might cause you to change your, change your mind. But some people just don't think it's a good, good decision or you're, you're too fickle to change your mind. But if you can change your mind and change your strategy and kind of pivot quickly um, that's also helpful too. And, and a lot of that is driven from your instincts, right? From your gut uh, to make that change uh, before it's too late, right? So, You know, for me personally, one of the biggest shifts in my leadership was to understand that leading is not telling people what to do. Yeah. Is empowering them to speak up. And then the, the most important part of the leader is not to be the smartest, is to mm-hmm. surround yourself with the smartest people you can. Yeah. And I think that piece is extremely valuable for fund managers as well because mm-hmm. they are team players. And the more I talk to fund managers, they all are looking for actually funny enough for hiring more hiring and finding more female partners to join their funds. Yeah. You know, raising that diversity level but it's not just about the numbers because lucky enough, we work with fund managers that are not, you know, they wouldn't hire a female partner just to, to look good. Sure. They understand that women in VC are bringing unique perspective and statistics proves that like the average diversity, um, diversity driven firm generates, I think it's 15.2 IRR. Mm-hmm. versus 3.7 on average. Yeah. Like just think about differences, almost, you know, 12%. Yeah. You're essentially um, losing out on performance if you don't uh, incorporate that into your strategy. Exactly. But there is no point of bringing diversity if you're not going to listen <laughs> to yeah. the team members that you have. So one of the things is, yes, of course, you have to be a visionary and you have to mm-hmm. be a leader and you have to drive your company and propel it forward. But you also need to be a good leader and it means to be a good listener. Yeah, no, it's good feedback and good advice. Um, I've seen some funds change their fund structure and pivot, right? They, they were an evergreen fund and then they moved to like, a, you know, a fixed AUM. Um, any other, in, you know, observations that you've seen on just funds having to change and, you know, how did they navigate that, you know, as far as maybe their portfolio construction, maybe their investment mandate, 
maybe maybe the LP base that they had, you know, really is starting to show an interest in impact, and maybe now they're focusing on impact. Um, but any examples of that would be good to good to know. About sure. Um, one of the interesting stats that I found is that emerging fund managers over in the U.S. I don't I'm not sure about the world, but mm-hmm. in the U.S. they overperform top ten VC firms, which is great news for emerging fund managers, mm-hmm. right? Because this is something they can use while raising capital. Um, and the reasons for that, why they over outperform top VC fund firms, because exactly what you mentioned, they're using creative approach towards structuring the fund. They're using unique approach towards supporting their portfolio, mm-hmm. sourcing their portfolio. Um, again, an example of, for example, happiness ventures, they have happiness index. Uh, and this is something, the tool they use to deal source and select the right deals. If mm-hmm. the founder is not matching the happiness index, which is, you know, a combination of different um, parameters, they're just yeah. saying no to, to the deal, even if it mm-hmm. looks good. So there is a lot of creative ways that emerging fund managers can implement in order to stand out and overperform. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, So John, you got a question. You want to just shout your question out? Sure. Uh, Very quickly, Anastasia, and and the insights that you have been sharing are great, Uh, great information. Uh, for us to to understand and, and kind of um, depend on in the future. Uh, we discussed about the nine out of 10 companies that fail, right? Usually that's the average. So my question to you is, um, and they don't probably have chances to become a unicorn. Very rarely they become unicorns, right? Uh, what is the ratio in the VC ecosystem? So how many of those VC firms, let's say we take 10 VC firms, how many of those 10 VC firms become successful? That's a great question, John. Thank you for that. Um, I don't think anybody gathered technically, at least I haven't seen the statistics, but I think the important question to ask is what do you consider a failure? Both when it comes to startups and when it comes to funds. Something that I see a lot that's happening, especially in the Midwest, is the shift towards patient capital and towards zebras instead of unicorns, right? The companies Mm -hmm. that are driven by profit rather than um, that are driven by, um, you know, just the growth. And when you look into funds, um, I saw, I mean, one of my good friends and mentors, Charlie Hartwell from um, Bridge, Bridge Builders. Uh, it's not a fund; it's a collaborative. But they're, you know, they're leading towards like a, the unique structure. Talking about the unique structure of a fund, right? So they started investing with the thesis of looking for sustainable business models and sustainable long-term positive impact as the core criteria mm-hmm. uh, alongside with profit. So, and they've been, they've been, they started investing eight years ago. Out of 14 deals they invested in, 14, eight years later, are still alive and performing. They're reaching, two companies right now are reaching 
a billion dollar valuation. So they are becoming unicorns, but that was not the goal originally. And again, eight years, it's a quite long period of time to start showing the returns. But the reason they've been able to do that is because they've created this mindset and they've selected partners that invested, that are investing with them from the very beginning that will be aligned with the strategy. So if you, you know, if you have a strategy of like, we're going to show you a return in three years from now, and then, you know, three years from now, you don't have any exits because you didn't push your portfolio to exit. I mean, are you a failure or not? Or you just have different strategy? So I think really digging deeper into understanding what does success mean to you and how do you measure success and then communicating it to your LPs is the way to decrease that failure rate. Did I answer your question, John? Yes, you did. I have one more. Um, And it has to do with how do we shorten because I, I was paying attention to the durations that you were talking about. So if it took them eight years to get a return, how do we shorten that that time frame, right? So, what can what kind of tools we have? What kind of what do we leverage to shorten that time frame? Instead of eight, I want to make it four or five years, uh, which is reasonable, right? So, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you can invest in the later stage companies. That's most obvious answer. Uh, that mm-hmm. are closer to exits. Or you can look into the companies, again, talking about zebras. If you have a strategy of, you know, we might not deliver 10x or 20x return. We want to deliver 2x, 3x, 4x return in three to two, three years. And we're Mm -hmm. looking for companies that are aligned with the same strategy. You know, maybe they're early stage companies, but they are building towards a specific acquisition. Right. So they started the company with that strategy in mind and their technology would allow to be acquired at that uh, stage. So, for example, a lot of deep tech companies are being acquired, you know, year, two years into development before even, you know, being released to market. So this is, you know, just one of the ways that you can and you can again, align strategies with all the shareholders, with the company NLPs. If you want to have that exit fast, faster, either find the companies that will exit and are building to exit or, um, you know, look for the later stage deals. So it's a portfolio strategy uh, altogether. How are you going to segregate things and, uh, you know, what what kind of companies you're going to have in each porf- uh, in each section of the portfolio, right? Because you do also want to have a diverse portfolio, right? Similar like what we do with the stock market, right? And uh, Right, right, okay. correct. Got it. Okay. Thank you so much, Anastasia. Thank you so much. Thank you for the great, question, great John. Yes. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Anastasia, thanks so much. I know we are coming up on the hour. Uh, good questions, good responses. Uh, really appreciate all the storytelling and thought leadership and uh, excited for the new friendship and, uh, you know, helping you uh, help our, having you help our emerging manager community uh, with all these tips that you're learning. So really appreciate it. And uh, it was a huge help. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. For-